right, so um, you can actually, we're going to do Matthew 18, but you can turn to Matthew 16 first. So if it's scary enough, I'm going to try to cover the whole chapter of Matthew 18. We're going to start in Matthew 16. So you should get even more nervous. So say you're asked this question, this question. Did Jesus, or does Jesus, think the church is important? Does Jesus himself think the church is important? Now, you're going to want to say, I'm hoping, you're going to say that feels like a trick question because the answer to that is yes, right? I mean, <laughs> we're just saying about it, right? So the answer seems yes. Well, then let me say this. Let's say then somebody says you are asked to back up your answer. Yours, you say, yes, Jesus thinks the church is important. They say, okay, well, show me why you think that from Scripture. So I'm imagining that you're going to do what would seem like a smart thing to do. You're going to go through the Gospels and start looking for where Jesus talks about church, right? Here's where you're going to get in a little bit of trouble. There's four Gospels. You're going to go through three of them, and you're not going to see the word church anywhere. In Mark and Luke and John, the word church isn't there anywhere. You're going to get to Matthew and you're going to find the word shows up two times in chapter 16 and in chapter 18. And so now you're going to feel like you're in a little bit of a quandary. I just answered that yes, Jesus thinks the church is very important, but yet it doesn't seem to show up much in the Gospels at all. It's my hope, after looking at these two places in Matthew 16 and 18 this morning, that you will not feel the need to change your answer from yes to no, but instead, if you're going to change your answer, you change it from yes to absolutely yes, Jesus does think the church is important. Here's the takeaway I'm hoping for us to leave with this morning. May we see and believe that Jesus gave the gift of church in order to usher saved sinners into the kingdom of God. May we see and believe that Jesus gave the gift of the church in order to usher saved sinners into the kingdom of God. That's what I'm hoping we walk away with this morning. So in the middle of chapter 16 of Matthew... And Jesus asked the disciples who others say he is. You might even remember this. And, and they respond, well, some say Jeremiah, and some say Elijah. Some, they're thinking of Herod here, even say you're like John the Baptist. And then he flips the question and he says, okay, but who do, and you can probably finish it, you say that I am. And then we get this very, very important moment in Matthew 16. It's as important in Matthew 16 as it is in Luke 9 and in Mark 8. It's the climax of every one of those Gospels is when, G or when Peter says back to Jesus, you are the Christ of God. Peter acknowledges Jesus as the Messiah. Everything builds to that in those Gospels and everything runs from there afterwards. And Jesus responds to him by saying, Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this, but the Father has shown this to you. And we see that in verse 17 of chapter 16. Everybody's following so far. This is what happens. Now we get to verse 18 where the word church is going to show up. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my what? Church. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then he says in verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. 
And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So as, we, as we've seen, as you walk through the book of Acts, it's not hard for us at all to understand what Jesus, at least big picture, is after when He says to Peter, On you, Peter, I am going to build the church. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build the church. Why do we know that? Because how does the church begin in Acts? Peter opens up his mouth, right? Peter preaches on Pentecost. Who stands up and preaches? It's Peter. And he preaches, and what happens? The church begins. Now, it's very interesting because Peter's not the guy you're going to pick as the most valuable player as you're walking through the Gospels, right? He's not the guy you're going to be building the church on. And Jesus turns to him before his denial and says, I'm going to build my church on that confession, on you and your confession. Jesus goes further and He says He's going to give the keys to the kingdom to Peter and goes further to say, whatever on earth you shall, shall be bound by you in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As Peter and others pass on the message of the gospel, some are loosed from their chains of bondage to sin, as they receive the gospel, and hear this clearly, others, and you see this in the book of Acts, are actually bound tighter in their lostness to sin as they reject the good news of the book gospel. Jesus already in Acts is fulfilling exactly what He says to Peter there. As you open your mouth, I'm going to build the church. The keys to heaven are going to be there because the way people get in is they hear the message of the gospel preached. Some are loosed from their change and others are further bound as they reject. So the church is founded on, the, on Peter, the chief evangelist, obviously ultimately founded on Christ Jesus Himself. There's nothing special about Peter, quite to the contrary, as we said. But he is who Christ chose as the foundation of the church. Now here's what's key here. I want you to notice the connection between church and in the kingdom. So he says, I'm on you, I'm going to build my church. And he says, I'm going to give you the keys to the what? To the kingdom. That, that's there, that's the connection. This is the first time in all the gospels the word church is mentioned. The word literally means, if you just break it apart into root, word, uh, root uh, uh, phrases, you would get this the called out ones. That's what it literally means. But that's really not the way that most people used it in that day. Probably not exactly what was being after here. Instead, the way that they use that is those who have assembled. And so what we get here is the kingdom. It's bigger than the church. The kingdom of God is bigger than the church. But the church is crucial to the kingdom because it is made up of the kingdom citizens. It is made up of the assembled kingdom Citizen. So when you think church, think assembled kingdom citizens. And so here we are, some 21 centuries later, after a lot has gone on, we're on the other side of the globe, we're in a land that was not even, quote, discovered then, and here we are talking about Peter, here we're talking about the church, here it has been founded by his spreading of the gospel. And guess what? You believe in Christ Jesus because somebody 
told you the good news of Christ. And somebody told them. And somebody told them, go all the way back, and Peter opened up his mouth. That's how the church is formed. It's a beautiful thing. And so here we have, on the other side of the world, kingdom citizens gathered, assembling for the kingdom. Now, Matthew 18. If point one is church, it's the assembly of kingdom citizens. Point two is humility, the chief mark of kingdom citizens. Church is the assembly of kingdom citizens. Humility is the mark of kingdom citizens, the chief mark of kingdom citizens. Verse 1 of Matthew 18, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, this is verse 1, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, that's actually a pretty fair question, at least somewhat. I mean, they, some of them had seen the transfiguration. They've heard Jesus talking about the kingdom. They're excited about the idea of the kingdom coming. And so they asked Jesus, well, in this kingdom coming, who is going to be the greatest? Now we look at this and we get down on the disciples pretty quickly. But let's be careful. I'll tell you something that we at least have to give them credit for is that they were thinking about the coming kingdom. I don't know about you, but one of the reasons I don't often ask the question who and how is it going to be the greatest in the coming kingdom is not because I don't wonder about that question, it's because I rarely think about the coming kingdom. As those in a Western society, it's easy for us to put hopes in lots of other things. Some of us are thinking more about future retirement than we are a coming kingdom. Some of us are thinking more about a future spouse than we are the coming kingdom. Some of us are just happy the NFL is going to start up in August more than we are the coming kingdom. But these men had been radically changed. They actually rested hope in the kingdom so much so that it mattered to them how is the pecking order going to be. That's not the right question. But at least they were there to ask it. Jesus flips everything upside down in verse 2. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. This is the child. Jesus grabs his child and puts him in the midst. And he says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now to understand this response, we have to understand that children in this culture were thought of very differently than they are today. They, they were not treated as idols. They were not the constant center of attention. They were not assumed innocent, sweet angelettes. They were cared for, but children were understood to be helpless, dependent, and needy. Now keep that in mind because the import of that is real crucial to understand what Jesus is after. Also, understand that Jesus does not answer the question who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Instead, He now flips it to first answer the question who even gets in to the kingdom. He says only those who turn, that is who change and become like children will enter the kingdom of God. Who gets into the kingdom? Those who are helpless, dependent, and needy. Citizens of the kingdom are helpless, dependent, needy persons. So if churches are assemblies of kingdom citizens, then churches are full of helpless, needy, dependent 
persons. Folks, that is not what characterizes most churchgoers today. Just be honest. Is it not the case that some of the proudest people in America wake up on Sundays, put on their finest clothes, and go out to church proud of their attendance and proud of their righteousness? Hear the Word of God clearly this morning. They will not see the kingdom of heaven. Proud people do not get in. Instead, a kingdom citizen arrives to church on a weekly basis and says, Father, thanks for drawing me again. Thanks for holding me fast one more week. Thanks for bringing me back. Thank you for the mercies that are represented on your behalf for my soul just in me being here. Thank you for Christ, my older brother and my Savior. C.J. Mahaney, in a, in a very helpful book called Humility, uh, he defines humility this way. He says, Humility is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness in our sinfulness. It is honestly assessing ourselves in the light of God's holiness in our sinfulness. The most distinctive characteristic of Christ-likeness is humility. The chief fruit of personal and corporate revival is humility. The most apparent sign of a healthy church is a humble church. Verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus flips it and he says, those who are least are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> Bear in mind, there is a big difference between childishness and childlikeness. <laughs> so Jesus says that humility is to be childlike, but let us not confuse that with childishness. Childishness is condemned in the Bible, but the Bible exalts childlikeness. Okay, so we have a chief mark of a kingdom citizen that is humility or childlikeness. Now this is really an important point for the rest of the chapter. Children need protection, care, and nourishment. If I never knew that before, I know that now. Children, in the word needy, in my mind, could not be any more synonymous than they feel like these days in my life. If childlikeness is the chief mark of kingdom citizens, then how will kingdom citizens be protected, cared for, and nourished? So Jesus almost sets up a problem here. Kingdom citizens are these childlike creatures. Well, the people in that day understood what that meant. That meant they're needy. Well, if they're needy, how are they protected and cared for? That's what the rest of the chapter is about. Verse 5. Whoever, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. Now that's Jesus on Jesus. <laughs> that's probably not one that makes many of our bumper stickers. One of the great quotes of Jesus, right? Alright, they're actually quite straightforward verses in one sense. Any parent, at least any good parent, 
If you ask them what brings them the most joy, a good parent is going to tell you to see my child flourish. And what brings them the most pain? To see their children in pain. Someone once smarter than me once said that a parent is forever bound to the truth that they will never be happier than their least happy child. I think that's very true. If you want to get to my heart quick, love my children. If you want to get me angry quick, hurt one of my children. And I think you're probably the same way. So is Christ. If you want to get to the feet of Christ and to tell Him you love Him, go love on one of His children. But you hear Him very clearly. You go causing pain to one of His children and He will literally hunt you down. That's exactly what that says. If anyone receives a kingdom citizen, a humble follower of Jesus, and helps them to flourish in the things of God, then he has received the Lord Himself. What an amazing promise. How could anyone say they love Jesus and not deeply love the church? Conversely, if anyone causes a kingdom citizen to not flourish, that is to sin, he will be judged and judged harshly. Verse 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom temptation comes. Now we begin to see what Jesus understood to be that from which kingdom citizens need to be protected. Kingdom citizens need to be protected from sin. Jesus understood that as kingdom citizens assembled in churches, they would need protection from sin. They need protection from sin from without, outside of the church. Temptation that comes from the world. Therefore, Jesus says, Woe to the world who in any way tempts any of my little ones, that's you and me, to sin. Jesus promises that no one in the world outside of the kingdom will get away with tempting believers to sin. They will be judged. No one who tempts a kingdom citizen to gossip was going to go unjudged. No one who seeks to sow division in a church of Jesus Christ will go unjudged. No editor of a magazine that tempts believing young women to dress in ungodly, immodest ways will go unjudged. No producer of mainline movies who seeks to normalize sex as anything outside of the beautiful private display of covenant love between a husband and a wife will go unjudged. God will judge anyone who incites sin in the heart of one of His children. Everyone will be judged. So, though kingdom citizens have been freed from the power of sin, they have not yet been fully freed from the presence of it. And as such, temptations will not only come from without, But it's also going to come from within. Read verse 8. 
And if your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. (laughs) Also not one of his most famous postcards, right? It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. I just don't understand these folks who say, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in things like hell. Okay, so the Jesus you believe in is a big liar, I guess. Anyway, all right, that wasn't in the sermon, but we'll just keep... It's all over the place. All right, verse 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Jesus is instructing kingdom citizens to fight sin with seriousness. This has to be one of the the weakest points of active doctrine in the life of modern churches. Most folks admit that they sin, at least when pressed. But few take it seriously. You cannot take these verses seriously and not take sin seriously. A kingdom church in the very guts of what it thinks, believes, and acts, will believe two things. Number one, it will understand that its citizens will and do sin. That's number one. Two, it will take that seriously. That's one of the points of what he developed the whole thing for. Okay, so how does that look? Well, that's the subject of the rest of the chapter. Verse 10. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. Remember, a little one is a kingdom citizen. That's, that's the whole argument here. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. I wish I had more time on that, but I don't. Verse 12. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine of the mountains and go and search for the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones as a kingdom citizen should perish. This section admonishes churches to not allow any member who wanders into sin to wander without an intense rescue effort. For about a day and a half this week, I'm sure like me, you saw the news spread that an Israeli soldier had gone missing in battle there in the Gaza Strip. Tragically, uh, we found out last night that he indeed was, uh, he was killed. But in those few hours, the Israelis were in a relentless hunt for this young man. Here Jesus says that a kingdom church treats every member with the same care. No member who wanders is allowed to wander without a major, intense, high-risk mission to rescue him or her. Now, I know this is going to seem like somewhat of an obvious point here, but notice that the rescue effort for the Israeli soldier, that would have been impossible if the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF, did not know who was an enlisted soldier. Similarly, a church without members has no way of knowing who it's responsible to go rescue. 
One of the most significant benefits of joining a church is a formal pledge of one of the other members to a joining member that God forbid, if the joining member should ever go missing, then a rescue effort would ensue to bring him back. Notice that is not a pledge made with just church pastors or deacons. It's a pledge made with the congregation. So if you're a member of Cornerstone Baptist Church, one of the benefits you have is this. We are committed that with God's help, we will not let you wander long without a rescue effort to come get you. And let me tell you, I am deeply concerned for my own soul. One of the things that would scare me the most is if you told me I had to live without a church family. And I mean an authentic family who knows me and is going to come after me. I know my soul. It could wander. But it's really a good thing to know there's a church who will come find me. I, this is not in the notes, but I'm just going to throw it out there. I remember when Nathan was in the process of joining one of the... Quite, we had some... It was around time we were doing the Constitutional Task Force and all that. He, he popped out a question that I thought was such a good question. He said, uh, uh, what are some of the things that the church pledges to those who join? Um, and I thought that was such a, a good question. Um, and I think one of the things he was looking for, and I think you got it as an answer, is... We'll come rescue you. Um, We'll come rescue you from your own sin, God forbid. Jesus says, "You you as kingdom citizens are children. We are children. We need protection. And Jesus says, I will give that to you in the blessed community of church. I instruct you to watch over each other's soul. We call this rescue effort something called church discipline. It's the process of the church recognizing that a sheep has gone astray and the church fulfilling its role given to it by Christ to bring them back. From beginning to end, it is about rescue and restoration. It is never judgment. It is never punitive in nature, but it's aimed at saving a a brother or a sister. This process is used for habitual, unrepentant sin. Look, let's just be honest. Let's not be silly. It's not used for each and every sin that's committed. We would do nothing else. But I, I couldn't even have a job. You couldn't have a job if you had to look after every single sin in my life. There's no way. I'd keep you busy, just me. Right? My wife can approve to that. She'd say, you'd spend all day getting confession calls, right? It's about... Wandering, And that's exactly what Jesus pictures there. A sheep that's gone astray. And that is, a sheep that's in the fold messes up and repents. Messes up, but repents. It's about habitual, unrepentant sin. Alright, so after giving instruction on how to handle general or unrepentant sin in the body, Jesus now says, what about friendly fire? And that's intentional friendly fire. When members sin against one another. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Now given what Jesus already said, we could even translate that when your brother (laughs) sins against you. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained a brother. We're instructed to reach out to our brother first in private. 
This demonstrates the emphasis placed on restoration and rescue. If he listened, you what? You won the argument? You showed him? Nothing like that in the Word of God. You gained a brother. You rescued a brother. Some said, what do they mean by gain a brother? Let me tell you, if they'd have found that Israeli soldier, and I said to those, his battalion that he went out with, hey, did you guys gain a brother? None of them are asking me, what do you mean by gain a brother? Yeah, we gained a brother. He was lost and he's back with us now. 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two of the others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. In the unfortunate event that the brother is unwilling to repent and turn from sin, then Jesus teaches to take one or two more folks in hopes they may be able to rescue Notice that every effort is made to encourage repentance, to encourage rescue. Only after the wayward brother has been given ample time to repent does anything go before the church. And taking it before the church is not punishment. Let me say that again. It's one of the most misunderstood things in the Scriptures on this. Taking it before the church, according to the Scriptures, is not punishment. Instead, it is to gain more help. I want to support that with argument from the Word of God here. How do I know that? Because the very next verse begins with, and if he refuses to listen, even to the church. So the point of taking it to the church is so the church can join in the rescue effort. It makes sense. you got a sheep that's gone. You go after them. You can't bring them back. So what do you do? You go get a couple more folks to go with you. You go together. You try to bring them back. We can't bring them back. What do you do? You get everybody and you all go. And you try to bring them back. Taking it before the church is not meant as embarrassment. It's not punishment. It is saying, let's all work to rescue. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now Jesus tells us that if a member is unwilling to repent, even after the church has spoken, then they are to be considered as a Gentile and a tax collector. They are to be considered as an unbeliever. That's exactly what Jesus is after there. There's no question about that. They are to be removed from church membership. Why? I think this is so important actually wrote why, question, 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 emphasized him, why. It's crucial to get the logic here. It is so crucial. Jesus does not recommend removal from church in order to be vindictive or some like final last straw. It is not anywhere in the argument here. No, he recommends it because any person who prevails in unrepentant sin gives evidence that his profession of faith was not genuine, or at least is not genuine. Now, let me hear, be careful. Jesus isn't saying be, get rid of them because that necessarily means they're an unbeliever. He says instead you were to what? Treat them like that. In other words, the most helpful thing you can do is say, as we look at the way you're living right now, that does not give evidence of faith. And therefore, the most helpful thing we can do is to treat you as one who is not in the faith. And if you end up repenting, then otherwise will be established. 
Since the church is made up of only genuine believers, if one acts like they are not a genuine believer, they must be removed from the membership of the church. Verse 18. I mean, Jesus is so clear here. 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Where have we seen this language about binding and loosing on earth and in heaven before? Chapter 16. The only other place he talks about? Church. Jesus tells Peter he's going to give them the keys to, to, the, to the church, to the kingdom. And recall that he says, by his confession, some are going to be bound and some are going to be loose to eternal joy. It's the same language here. The church is obligated in this manner. To fail to do so is to be as bad as to fail to share the gospel to begin with. Let me say that again. Failure to rescue another brother is as bad as failing to share the gospel to begin with. Why? Because when a member shows evidence that their faith is not genuine by remaining in unrepentant sin, then the church must be honest that this person may be in danger of eternal ruin. It would be incredibly, incredibly unloving for a church to allow someone to live in their midst And treat them as if they are a believer when the church has reason to question their profession of faith given their life. That would be a very unloving thing to do. Look at verse 20. It's very interesting. This is not... We use it a lot about prayer, but to be honest, it's not principally about prayer, if at all. I know we are... Well, let me read it first. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This statement is connected very tightly with verses 18 and 19. He is saying that when the church acts properly and carefully and makes a declaration that a person's profession does not appear genuine, then Christ Himself is with them. Notice how close this language is to Matthew 28. Remember Matthew 28, we get the Great Commission. Go ye therefore, make disciples, baptizing, and blah, 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 and then you get to the end, and what? Lo, what? I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Just like Jesus is with the church as they seek to make disciples, so also He is with the church when the church lovingly tells a professing disciple that their profess that their profession does not appear genuine given their life. Now here's what's interesting. Right now, I'm sure like me, this feels kind of new. Kind of harsh. This is what's so interesting if you look at church history. That's a real shame. Because this has been the practice of churches across the centuries. Until about the last 75 years, when in the midst of the church growth movement, we threw this passage in the junk drawer. Any responsible pastor, any responsible congregation must obey the teachings of Christ and care to rescue lost soldiers. It may be uncomfortable, it may be hard, 
but it is biblical and it is a way to save souls from hell. Let me read to you an actual dialogue from church history between a Baptist minister in England. This is Andrew Fuller, if you're interested in Baptist history. And now he dies in 1815. This is an actual dialogue, so it's probably late 1700s, over 300 years ago. I love reading old Baptist. And uh, he, this is the dialogue that he had with a person in the membership interview process. A lot of how we do membership, it's not new. This is the way Baptists have been doing it for centuries. He's been told that the lady who he's interviewing has been disciplined by her past church. It was called an independent. She's going to call it an independent church in this, but it's like be like a, a Presbyterian church today. Listen to this interview. This is Fuller. Well, Margaret, you've lived in the world for about forty years. In other words, about forty years old. How long do you think you've known Christ? Hmm, a little more than a year. What? No longer? I, I don't think so. And you've never professed to know Him before that time? Yeah, I did. I was a member of an independent church for several years. A member of a church that did not know Christ? How is that? I was brought up to be religious, and I deceived myself and others into professing so. And then why did you leave the church? I was cut off. In other words, church discipline, they removed me. What, because you became persuaded to be Baptist? That's funny. No, because of my bad conduct. Of what then had you been guilty? My heart was lifted up in vanity. I got in a debt for clothes and other things and then deceived and did many things. Okay, I had to stop and laugh when I read this. They disciplined this woman for having credit card debt and lying about it. Um, Oh, God forbid we went that far in our churches today. But anyway, um, shopping for women has always been a problem in the church. i got historical evidence of this. All right, anyway. All right, um, that's the first amen I got out of this corner. Um, So, yeah, you'll deal with that when you get home. All right, so... uh, All right, so she says, I lied about a lot and they cut me off. And it was for these things they cut you off. Yeah. And do you think that was right? Oh, yes. And did that help you come to the knowledge of Christ that you at last have? When I was cut off from that church, I sunk into the deepest despondency. I felt as an outcast from God and man. I wandered about speaking as it were to nobody and nobody speaking to me. My burden seemed heavier than I could bear. At that time, a passage or two of Scripture came to my mind. And I was led to see that through the cross of Christ, there was mercy for the chief of sinners. I wept much. My sin was very bitter. But I saw there was no reason to despair. For the blood of Christ cleanses from all sin. And it was there that I found my conversion in Christ. Fuller finishes. And did the minister in the church of which you remember know all this? She said, yeah. (laughs) Hello, Fuller. Why didn't you go and tell him and go back to that church? (laughs) She said, this is one of my favorite parts. Well, in the midst of that, I felt in my conscience that I grew with the Baptists. She got saved, read the Bible, and became a Baptist. That's pretty awesome. Mm. This is a church 
but was willing to discipline her. And according to her own words, they rescued her from eternal ruin. They obeyed Jesus' teaching. And in so doing, they rescued the perishing. If this seems in any way haughty or proud, would you please remember how this passage began? How does Jesus say, what is the chief mark of a kingdom citizen from the mouth of Jesus? In this passage, humility. And listen to how He ends it. I am blown away by the beauty of this. 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Peter is so awesome because he tracks and then he, he can see him track, 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 track and then all of a sudden it's like wrong track, brother, right? Peter's listening to this going, whoa, at this rate I could get sinned against a lot, right? <laughs> as many as seven times? Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Peter's tracking. If I'm a part of one of these assemblies you're talking about, I'm going to get sinned against a lot. And it sounds like I'm going to have to deal with it. It sounds like I'm going to have to forgive. And Jesus says, you got that. A lot? A lot more than you think. Oh, listen to how he ends this passage. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, kingdom and church, so close, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Verse 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. Verse 26. The servant, he fell on his knees and he implored him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. Verse 27. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. Sound familiar? But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Well, have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported their master all that has taken place. His master summoned him and said, You wicked servant. I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Hear carefully. Verse 35. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Sandwich. He sandwiches the whole idea of church bliss discipline and bookends it beautifully. On one hand, those who are real kingdom citizens will be humble people. And on the other end, 
There will never be anybody on earth who will be more quickly to forgive than a citizen of the kingdom of heaven because he or she has been forgiven so much. How is he going to protect his flock? By surrounding them with humble people who are ready to forgive but love enough to say sin is sin. And I love you enough that I'll rescue you from it. That is Jesus on the church. Let's pray.